The title for you this morning is this, The Consequences of a Broken Covenant. The Consequences of a Broken Covenant. Again, we're in Amos chapter 3. Let me begin by saying this. A covenant with God comes with its consequences, and experience with God comes with its expectations. Faith should lead to function, and his grace should result in a life of gratitude. But what happens with people? People who claim to have a covenant agreement with God to be faithful, saved, chosen, and redeemed people, when they don't talk like it, act like it, or live like it. As a Christian and as a pastor, I think you, you and I need to come to grips with this reality. We hear a lot of talk about people who got saved some time back, but there's little or no evidence that they ever met God in the first place. It's high time for us to realize that our faith in Christ is calling us to a spiritual adulthood. I like what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians. It's going to come up here on the screen. When I was a child, he said, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Some of us need to put away childish things. Some of us need to grow up. Some of us need to take responsibility for the spiritual immaturity that is in our life if we are indeed in a covenant relationship with God. Again, what happens when the people of the covenant aren't living like the people of the covenant? In other words, as our title leads us to believe, what happens when the covenant is broken? That's what I want to discuss with you this morning. And our first point is this, the Lord, or excuse me, the people the Lord knows. This is verses 1 through 8, the people the Lord knows. We've already read it together, so I'm not going to read it again. Got a lot to share with you today, so I'm going to go quickly. This section of Amos begins the hear this word section. You can look at it in your Bibles. We have it here in chapter 3, verse 1. Hear this word. Jump forward to chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this word. And then further again, chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this word. This section in 3, 1 is still aimed against Israel, the northern kingdom, because Samaria is mentioned in chapter 3, verse 9 for example, but at the same time, God is also speaking to Israel at large, not just the northern kingdom. Remember that the kingdom is divided, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. But in this particular case, I don't think God is just speaking to Israel. I think he's doing something on a grander scale. And the reason for that is found in verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel. Are you there with me? Against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. So keep that in mind. There's a bit of a dynamic happening here. Samaria is mentioned in verse 9. So there is a locale 
that God is focusing on. And yet at the same time, he's not only speaking to the northern kingdom, he's kind of discussing what he is talking about with all of his people. The Lord continues. You can look at it in verse 2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. This is an important word in the context of Amos' prophecy and book. The point is that God knows Israel intimately in a way that no one else is known in all the world. And how are they known? What do we call their relationship with God? We call it a covenant. Now, you can follow there with me if you'd like in your Bibles, or you can just make a note. But I would like you to think and hear the words Exodus chapter 23, sorry, Exodus chapter 24, verse 3 through 8. Exodus 24, verses 3 through 8. It says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Did you get that? Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning. He built an altar at the foot of the mountain where he received the law. And 12 pillars, one pillar representing each of the 12 tribes. He sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings to oxen to the Lord. He sent young men to do that. Moses took half the blood put it on the basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. He took the, blood, the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Moses took the blood, he threw it on the people, and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. As far as his word reveals to us at no other time, at no other place, and to no other people has God said with this covenantal affection, you are mine. You are mine. And how else can a group of people respond to God when he says you are mine except to say, Lord, we are yours. But there are expectations that exist for creation. And in this case, more specifically, for God's covenantal people. God gave them the law. It was not a negotiation. The covenant is God saying, here are the rules. And the acceptance of the covenant is either I accept the covenant or I do not. There's no negotiating a covenant with God. God creates the grounds of the covenant. They accepted this covenant. And so God says in Amos chapter 3, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. And then he says, look at chapter 3, verse 2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. And then he says, therefore, therefore, 
Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. Do we, as the people of God, have special privileges, special blessings, special grace? Yes, and absolutely. Unquestionably, yes. But there are also a a special obligation and special responsibilities and special scrutiny that comes with being a people of God. The true people of God can't ever escape the reality of this position. On the one hand, we have so much more than those who aren't in the kingdom of God. And yet, on the other hand, we also have so much more by way of expectation than the kingdom of this world places on its people. And this family is where the prophets enter the scene. The people of God have a covenant with God, and the prophets are covenant mediators. They mediate between God and his people when those people aren't living according to the covenant. And that's what's happening here. God's people have agreed to the covenant, but they're not keeping the covenant. And we'll discuss how they're being unfaithful later. Verses 7 through 9, if you look at it with your eyes, it says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret To his servants, the prophets, the lion has roared, who will not fear? The the Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Part of being God's covenant people means the influence of God's prophets on your life. Those who preach the word of the Lord. Today, we aren't in the same situation. We are still the people of God. By faith in Jesus Christ, yes, but the Word of God, the Bible, has taken the place that used to be occupied by prophets in both the Old and New Testament times. There are no prophets today as there were in the times of Amos, some 800 B.C. So if someone says, the Lord told me to tell you this, verify it with the Bible. God doesn't speak that way anymore. God has told you what you need to know. If you think you need to know more than that, you probably haven't spent a lot of time in your Bible, and you're relying on an experiential relationship with God rather than a fact, truth-based relationship with God. Never follow your feelings until your feelings have been sanctified by the Word of God. This leads to our second and our final point, the people God knows, and finally, the people God judges. God's covenant people aren't being faithful. And by faithful, I mean obedient. And by obedient, I mean they're not loving the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind as they are commanded to do in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. In that place that is called the Shema, Hear, O Israel! But another text in Deuteronomy I want to bring your attention to, and that is Deuteronomy chapter 28. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, God places the guidelines, the pros, the cons of his relationship with his covenant people. 
In chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, verse 1, God says, if you are faithful, if you are obedient, all of these blessings will come to you. But in verse 15, God changes tone. He turns the corner and he says, but if you are not faithful, judgment will come to you. You see, blessings for faithfulness, judgment for unfaithfulness. So verse 12 reads, thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch or part of a bed. That's a weird verse, isn't it? This is God saying sarcastically that, that, they own, that the only thing that is going to be saved to provide evidence that there ever was a lamb in the first place is going to be a piece of an ear or a leg. And he's saying, just like a shepherd who, who will save a leg of a lamb after it is terrorized by a lion, so Samaria is going to have nothing left in it except a piece of a couch or a part of a bed that's going to lead people to say, there must have been a city here. In other words, in his divine sarcasm, God is saying, this judgment will be definite. This judgment will be absolute. And how do we know this? Look back at verse 6. Looking back at verse 6, it says, Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Of course they get afraid. The trumpet was the warning sound of battle. When the trumpet was sounded, people got fearful. Second part of verse 6, Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Again, no, disaster doesn't come to a city unless the Lord has done it. But I want you to see something here, guys. Look at verse 4. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Verse 5, does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? In other words, God is testifying to his people. Say amen if you're listening. There is a cause and effect relationship between God's judgment and your obedience. So many of you are not living in alignment with God at all whatsoever. And when trouble comes, you go, why, God, why? And God goes, does disaster come on a city unless I've done it? Does a bird just land in a trap if there is no trap there for it? Of course, this is God rhetorically trying to get the people to understand that the reason judgment is coming upon them is not because God is mean or wicked or unfair or unfaithful. On the contrary, God is holding up his end of the covenant with his people by judging them, by disciplining them. Because God cares more about our character than he does our comfort. Because God cares more about our holiness than our happiness. Some people want to be so happy. And they are convinced that their happiness is everywhere God is not. Well, you can sow that. But you will reap what you sow. 
Then verses 13 through 15, at the end of the chapter, it says, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. That's sometimes translated the Lord of armies. That on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off, fall to the ground, and I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. There's a play on words here in verses 13 through 15, and the play on words has to do with the word house. I don't know if you see the recurrence of that word, but in particular, it also has a play on one word, which is the center of the entire judgment in this section of scripture. Look at it with your eyes. It says, house of Jacob. Well, first of all, that's a reference to Israel, and you're going to see that in one minute. He says, hear and testify against the house of Jacob. In other words, hear and testify against Israel. But he says, house of Jacob. And then he says, I will punish the altars of Bethel, which in Hebrew, Bethel literally means house of God. Listen, house of Jacob, I'm going to punish the house of God. And then further on in verse 15, I'm also going to strike the winter house and the summer house and the houses of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall come to an end. I think you get the point here, but I want you to see what God is saying. You have a lot of property. You have affluence. You have opulence. You've got the summer house. You've got the winter house. You know, I live here and I've got a house in Naples. I don't, I'm just saying. I live here half the year, and then I live over there half the year, which is not a sin, by the way. And I've got the house of ivory, which was very expensive and rare. And the great house shall perish. Large houses, big property, large houses. And the people of God are going... I know I'm blessed because I've got so much. Look at this amazing house I have, and they're neglecting the house of God. You see, in all the houses that we have, no house is more important than the house of God. And for the people of God, Bethel has always been an important location for God's people, primarily because it is an important location for events. Important events occurred in that area, and as a result, those areas became known as Bethel or Bethel. A couple of points here worth noting. First, Genesis chapter 28. In Genesis chapter 28, we read a text that is the famous dream sequence, commonly referred to as Jacob's Ladder. There in Jacob's Ladder... In the dream, he has a dream, and he sees angels ascending and descending on a ladder. In other words, heaven is involved providentially on the events that are happening on earth. And when Jacob wakes up, Jacob says, I'm going to call this place Bethel. The second reference is in Genesis chapter 35. 
in Genesis chapter 35, verses 9 through 15, and we find a text in which Jacob is told by God, you will no longer be called Jacob. You will be called Israel. And at the conclusion of that section in verse 15, it says, and Jacob, Israel, called the place, guess what? Bethel. He said, this place is the house of God. Friends, Bethel is an important place in the history of God's people. And this is why there's a play on words here. God is trying to tell the house of Jacob that there is no house more important than his house. The winter house, the summer house, the ivory house, the great house, none of these houses are more important, no matter the opulence, the affluence, the financial strongholds that we sometimes make our own idols, those things are not as important as our relationship to God and the locations he has placed us to live in and worship him in. I like the way James says it. James chapter 4. James says, some of you sin by saying, tomorrow we will go here or there and sell this and that and make a profit. What you should say is, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will go to this or that city and sell this or that and make a profit. Everything that we have is God's grace. Everything that we own is God's grace. Never forget that word from James. What you should say is, if the Lord wills, we will live. It starts there. The breath in your lungs, the blood flowing through your body. Sure, there is medical facts and terms. There are psychological aspects to us that we have to take care of. All of these things are true. But ultimately, your life is in God's hands. And when we went to bed last night, I don't know about you, I was not guaranteed I would wake up today. It's a gift. And this day that we live in, we live to his glory and to our good by his grace alone. So if we have a big house or a small house, it's his grace. But no house is more important than his house. It doesn't matter what God gives to us. We must never appreciate the gift over the giver. We must never take what God has to offer before we take God himself. In order to help us appreciate the fact that he has given and has blessed, but still is also the judge of us, I want to share with you three facts that are going to come up here on the screen. The first is this. We must remember, number one, that God is our creator. God is our creator. Now, some of you young people, you say, well, I have to answer to my parents. And for some of you, I'm sorry for that. It's a shame you have to answer to some of your parents because your parents should be embarrassed at the kind of job that they have offered to you as custodians of gifts of God. Frankly, I'm embarrassed and ashamed to see the amount of people 
who were exposed to church at a young age who can't forget about it fast enough when they turn 20. That's not my fault. That's your fault. That's not Alex's fault. That's your fault. Mom, Dad, you need to do your job. You better take it seriously. It's not their happiness that's at stake. It's heaven and hell. It's saved and unsaved. It's grace or no grace. It's a future or you get 80 years, you better enjoy it. Because you won't have anything after that. Your children have not been entrusted to you so that you can coddle them, make women who are entitled and irresponsible, and men who have idols like video games and pornography. We're in the business of making godly men and godly women. If you're not in that business, you better go someplace else. There's a lot of churches that will coddle you and help you feel good about those things. This is not one of them. We're here to fight war. We're here to do battle. I will not give up my daughters to one of those spineless boys, and I will not allow you to grow boys like that. We're in this to claim our future. We're in this to claim glory for Christ. Why? Because he's our creator. You will answer. I will answer. Boy, Alex said today, it's all about proximity. Plane looks small, far away. I love what John Newton said. I've never met anyone a worse sinner than I. The closer you get to God, the more you realize your own sin. The closer you get to God, the more you realize today is grace for me. I don't know about anybody else, but I'm going to use it to be in proximity to my God. You and I both, we will give an account for the life that we have been given. We can't ascribe to God who or what we think we should or shouldn't be, what we should or shouldn't do. That's not our prerogative. Now, God will give us enough grace to make those decisions in the hopes that that grace would lead us to conversion. Does that make sense? He will let you do what you want to do. That should be a fearful thought. But he will hold you to account for that. For that. He will hold you account for those things. What you and I can do is this. We have to sit under his word. We have to listen, learn, and live accordingly. Listen, learn, and live accordingly. We don't read back America 2021 into the Bible. God, please don't. We read the Bible and we look at America and we go, America's lost. But if we grab everybody's preference, everybody's wish, and then we turn every scripture that says, this shall not be that way, and you shall not live like this, and we go, well, that's different. It's different because it was written a long time ago. Well, if you're going to do it with that, you got to do it with God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus. So you're out of luck. You don't get the covenant. 
without the expectations. You and I, we will give an account because God is our creator. But we also have to remember that God is good. Amen? Amen. Psalm 136 verse 1 says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. How long? Forever. I think we shy away from God's sovereignty sometimes because God's sovereignty can be an intimidating doctrine. When God is sovereign and in control of all things, it's difficult for us in our finite minds to make sense of those things. Amen? Sometimes we can go, I know that God loves me and I know that God's with me, but how does this work? And I don't know about you, but I've been there. There's been situations in my life that are hard and are difficult. And I go, God, I I don't know how your sovereignty works in this, but I know you are good. I go back to that. Sometimes you got to go back to that. Sometimes life is so complicated and it's so theologically confusing. You go, I know this is something I'm not going to be able to wrap my brain around. But this, I can wrap my brain around. I can get my brain around the fact that God is my creator and he is good. I can wrap my brain around that so that when I'm going through difficult times, trials, tribulations, whatever it might be, I can go, I don't know how this is all going to work out or why I'm the one going through it. But I know my God is good. And I'm going to lean on the goodness of my God. And I'm going to remember the things that he's done for me in the past. And I'm going to trust in faith that he's going to do it again. God is righteous and God is good. He is not a man, and he will not change his mind about his love for you. And thirdly, God is committed to his glory, not ours. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, and my praise I will not give to idols. You see, when God does something good in your life, you go, oh, God loves me. Yeah, but he didn't do it for you. He did it for you for praise. You see that? You see, when God judges, he judges because if he doesn't judge, then he's an unfair God. He must judge because if he doesn't judge, then he allows, permits, and tolerates sin. If he does that, then he's no longer just. And yet, he loves us to such an extent that he gave us Jesus to pay for our sin so that he can both punish our sin in Jesus and justify us in Jesus. But he doesn't do it for us. He does it for his glory. This is why so many churches and so many Christians, particularly in the Western world where we have so much, this is why they're so anemic. They think God did everything that he did for for them. It is what we would call a man-centered gospel. The gospel is Christ-centered. It's not man-centered. Yes, God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's true. That's just a statement. But ultimately, God does all things for his glory. 
So that when Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, he says, so whether you eat or drink or in all things, do it to the glory of God. We don't do it for our glory and say, well, I'm so glad that you came and sent Jesus for me so that I can be so amazing. God did what he did for us so that we could have a proper relationship of praise to him. As we move through the book of Amos and read the words of the Lord, we're going to be reminded of just how sovereign he is. He's sovereign over the nations, and he's sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over kings, and he's sovereign over kingdoms. He's sovereign over hell, and he is sovereign over heaven. God is sovereign in all things, and we will answer to him. And you might ask, well then, which is it? Are we responsible, or is God sovereign? And to that I answer, yes. Yes, you and I are morally responsible for our lives, and God is sovereign. It's both. It's not one or the other, and if you're going to push somebody on it, somebody being me, I'm going to lean toward the sovereign side because that's my theology. Ultimately, God in all things. But we can't read the Bible and say, look, we're like robots. We're not. We are called to choose. We are called to love. We are called to act. And those commands come with an expectation. We are, you and I, morally responsible agents in God's creation. And yet, God is sovereign in all things. How do we jive that together? There's a couple verses I want to share with you. And then we'll wrap up and close. One thing that can't be subtracted from the equation of this conversation are the verses that we find in the Bible that place purpose behind God's sovereignty. One verse is Genesis chapter 50, verse 2, 20, sorry, 50, verse 20, and another is Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans, uh, excuse me. And Genesis chapter 50, those of you who are familiar with Genesis, we are at the end of the book, and Joseph is speaking. Now, if you know your Genesis history, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. Sorry if you have a family like that. I'm sorry. And, and, and God took Joseph, and he placed him ultimately after a number of incidences, he ultimately placed him in second in command in Egypt. The only person above Joseph in Egypt was Pharaoh. So here's this Hebrew guy who is basically the vice president of Egypt. Everybody came to him for information, and the only person he answered to was Pharaoh. And a famine hits Israel the land of Canaan. So everybody has to go to Egypt, and wouldn't you know it, who's in charge? Joseph is. Through his planning, through God speaking to him, through dreams, and through his providence, Joseph has everything prepared for his family. There's forgiveness, there's reconciliation. All of these things take place in Egypt between Joseph and his family. And at the end of Genesis, this conversation is going on about ill will. 
And Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So we read Genesis and we go, what a, bu- what a bunch of terrible siblings. Who would sell a sibling? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Who would sell a sibling into slavery like this? They are morally culpable. They are morally responsible, those brothers. They are. It says, as for you, Joseph says, you meant evil. And yet, while that's happening and they are morally responsible, behind the scenes, there is God's providence. Joseph says, you meant it for evil. Same words. God meant it for good. In all things. God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive today like you are today, Joseph says. Talk about a mature faith. I mean, that's not a spiritual tantrum, is it? You know, when you're in, like, Publix, and the mom says no, and the kid throws himself down, starts kicking the tile and everything else, right? Whatever happened to discipline, I don't understand. I don't, I don't get it. But that's another conference. Joseph is not doing that. Why me, God? Why me? He sees God's hand in his life. Do you see God's hand in your life? To the extent that the people that he is reconciled to the very family that sold him into slavery with their repentance and their apology and their witness of who he has become and what God has done, he doesn't go, I'll never be your friends again. No, he goes beyond that. He goes way beyond that. He goes, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God had something going on here. You meant it for evil, but you have no idea what my God has done. That's maturity. That's spiritual depth. Romans 8.28. Who can forget Romans 8.28 in a conversation such as this? We know, Paul says, that for those who love God, all things, how many things? All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You see, all things work together for good because God's working them that way for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that verse is kind of exclusive. I, I, hear, I hear the tone of exclusivity in it. In other words, if you want everything to work out for your good, then you've got to be in the covenant with him. God isn't working out good for everybody. God is working out the good for those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, if you want God to work all things for good for you, in your life, in your home, in your faith, you've got to be a Christian first.